Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This is David Shoemaker, and I'd like to welcome you to Living Thelema. This episode is called The Magic of the Gnostic Mass. Now, obviously, the, the Mass itself is a magical ritual, and we could spend many, many hours, as many others have, uh, talking about the symbolism of the Mass itself. Um, there is a specific technology, a specific uh, ritual intention there. Um, but our focus today is going to be slightly different. I want to look at the Mass as a set of instructions in performing any sort of magical ritual. We can learn a lot from looking at the way it's structured, from looking at the components, uh, the flow of the ritual, the way that the officers of the Mass embody certain inner principles of every person, every magician, and what we can learn from that. So there are several themes that present themselves, and, and I'm going to be talking about a few of them. Uh, this will by no means be exhaustive. There is so much material to be mined in, in the Mass. Um, uh, you know, you can never really exhaust it. Um, I also want to clarify that um, this is not EGC or OTO doctrine about uh, the meaning of any of these uh, aspects of the Mass. These are my observations and interpretations, and I encourage you to, to uh, consider them with skepticism and with critical thinking and uh, see what you think. So, in many ways, the overarching theme I'm going to be talking about today is how the Mass is a lesson in managing our own inner experience, mystically and magically. Um, also, how to execute a personal ritual, how to relate to the divine, how to relate to the physical world, how to understand our basic nature, how to harness and direct energy, and last but certainly not least, how to be of service to the world. The Mass conveys some instructions about all of these things in my view. So let's uh, start to take a look at this. Right from the outset, there's a lesson in the way the Mass is set up, the way the temple itself is set up. Um, one thing that's clear right from the beginning is you need to have an altar or a shrine that is sacred to you and that you treat with respect. Uh, have a temple set up that symbolizes the universe somehow, your universe. Um, any magical ritual needs to have a space that is defined in a certain way so as to imply the field of working of the magician. So here we've got in the Gnostic Mass Temple, more or less, a tree of life set up implied on the floor plan. Um, Tree of Life, of course, from the Kabbalah is a uh, extremely common uh, symbol for the totality of the universe, the totality of the, the inner world of the magician, and um, a way of defining our relationship to our universe. Another thing we learned from the setup of the Mass is, as Crowley says, that only those who plan to communicate are normally present for the Mass. Um, what's the magical instruction here? Obviously, there's a practical instruction that you you don't want people who are just wandering in off the street and don't have any intention of participating to, to be present. But taken on an inner plane, this is a way of saying if there's a part of you that isn't 
on board, you know, for the ritual you're doing. If there's a part of you that's distracted by outer things or isn't committed to the aim of the ritual, don't have it in the temple with you. Leave that part outside. Um, I think that's a very important um, instruction. In the old Golden Dawn, um, you get something similar with that exclamation of Hekas Hekas Este Bebeloi. Everything that doesn't belong here, get out. So that's the setup. But uh, let's talk about another very important theme that I see developing uh, in the Mass. And this will remind you a bit, I I believe, if you've listened to my uh, two-part episode on uh, sex magic and mysticism, um, I talk about a a series of magical operations there that can best be summarized as purify, then consecrate, then initiate. And we can look at what happens to the priest in the West and the priestess in the East as instructions in how to manage uh, the purification, consecration, and initiation of certain parts of ourselves. Purification, as you'll recall, is washing away alien elements. See Liber de Lege Libellum for Crowley's definition of that. Um, when we purify something, we, we wash away the parts of it, the, the aspects of it that are, that are in the way, that are not aligned with the sacred aims. Um, then um, when we consecrate it, we give it fire, the sacred fire. We align it with, uh, with those ritual aims that we have. We, uh, we essentially make it sacred. This pure thing is now sacred. Uh, and then we give it a specific trajectory, and that's the initiation. When something is given uh, its, its magical aim, like a talisman, when you purify it and consecrate it and you charge it with a specific force, that's sort of the initiation of the talisman. Uh, so how do we apply these to the specific tasks of the priest and priestess, and what can we learn from that? Well, first of all, we have to decide what aspect of ourselves the priest represents. And one way of thinking of that would be the priest is an exemplar of every human aspiring to the divine. The priest is the every person. Um, he's the alchemical first matter as uh, a man among men. He's a naturally occurring thing, ready to be given a certain mission, a certain aim. So um, in purifying the priest, what are, we, what are we saying about how we're preparing ourselves for our pursuit of the divine, if you want to call it that? Um, we wash away outer influences, perhaps. We um, get rid of our distractions that we may have from the, the outside world, um, mundane concerns. Just like beginning any other ritual um, or other endeavor of will, we leave that stuff at the door. With the consecration, uh, and the priestess says, uh, be the priest fervent of body and soul, um, it's worth noting that while in modern usage the word fervent means uh, something like having a passionate intensity, the original meaning is, is more literally like hot, glowing, or burning. Uh, or even boiling or foaming um, in, in its original form. So it sounds an awful lot like a consecration by fire to me. Um, the priest is aligned with and empowered by the spirit fire. He is given force uh, now that he's been purified. Uh, then he's initiated into the priesthood. 
now, what does he need for that? And what can that tell us about the nature of his mission, and therefore the nature of our mission as an aspirant to the divine? Um, at least the the divine as represented by some key symbols in, in uh, Thelema. Um, he needs a, the solar current, symbolized by the robe. He needs a solar force and a serpent force, symbolized by the Uraeus crown. This is the specific character of his service. So purify, consecrate, and initiate into a particular mission, a particular ritual aim. Uh, so we have a purified and consecrated priest given the uh, aim of executing a solar serpentine current. Now, um, this, besides being the specific action done for the purposes of the Gnostic Mass, is an instruction in how to imbue ourselves with any particular force uh, in order to pursue our magical mission. Okay, now that we've talked about the priest preparation, let's look at the priestess. And as with the priest, in order to understand what's happening here, we need to define our vision of what the priestess is in terms of our inner life. Uh, what does this officer represent um, within us? And uh, one way of looking at that would be that she is an exemplar of inner and outer principles of divinity, just the idea of divinity itself. If the priest is the aspirant um, seeking union with the divine, then the priestess is that, is that divine goal. And um, this can be within and without uh, the, the divinity that resides within us and the divinity that we see in the world all around us, the eminent uh, principle like uh, Shekinah, for example. Um, she also can be a symbol of the dual nature of this spirit, um, just as we see um, in myths like Parsifal, the, where uh, Kundri is this dual dual feminine, uh, where she is Malkuth as well as Binah. She is the, the natural vegetative world as well as the supernal divine feminine, uh, at least in one way of looking at it. So um, we can see that show up in the action of the Mass in terms of her coming to the priest at the tomb situated in Malkuth as the Virgin and then, uh, and so in other words, the, the final hay of Tetragrammaton, and then being elevated to Binah as the first hay of Tetragrammaton, from Malkuth to Binah. Um, there's a lesson there in how we find spirit, uh, how we recognize spirit. How do we, how do we treat this divine principle within in order to rightly understand it and worship it? The first thing is that we have to recognize it. We have to see this in the world around us. The priest has to recognize the, the priestess as um, an emissary of the divine, as embodying the divine, and accept her purification, consecration, and initiation. Accept the, the priest-making ceremony that she does on him in the West. So in order, in our own lives, to approach the divine, we first have to accept its influence in our lives, in our everyday experience, to recognize it and allow it to imbue us with the necessary principles to engage in our true will and our, our magical aim. Uh, next, 
the priest has to take that divinity he has recognized and elevate it to the highest shrine he can possibly imagine, represented by the altar in the East. Um, so what's the lesson here for us as individuals, as aspirants? Um, once we have allowed the divine to do its work on us in the, in, in the world, then we try to um, try to experience it, to understand it, to hold it in a place of inner sanctity um, so that we can, can rightly worship it. It's not simply a physical thing. It's not simply the physical world uh, that we've seen around us. It is something much, much more than that, and it is also that. Uh, so I guess the purification of the priestess could be seen as purifying our very idea of the divine, um, washing away the accretions of limiting ideas about divinity and cultural baggage about what God or goddess or whatever is supposed to be. Um, that must be purified. That must have no alien elements uh, in it in order for us to rightly worship it. Then at, when the uh, priest consecrates the priestess, you know, we might look at this as an aligning of these purified ideals with the fiery force of our worship, the, the, uh, the devotion, the passion, the, the aspiration, um, that sort of fire and force um, given to these religious ideals. And then the priestess's initiation, if you want to think of it that way, is completed um, in one sense when she's identified with the pentagram and with the covenant of resurrection. This is the, the true nature of the eternal, undying, divine forces uh, within us and without us. Um, so just as the priest was purified, consecrated, initiated, given a magical mission, um, the priestess is purified, consecrated, initiated, except here, the field of operation is our very idea, our very conception of the divine. Okay, so uh, that's what I wanted to say about that sequence, Purify, Consecrate, Initiate, and I hope you can see how, on one level, of course, it's happening in the Mass for the purposes of the mission of the Mass itself, but you can see how there's some lessons in here about how we treat ourselves, how we treat our aspiration to the divine that go way beyond any specific ritual that really tell a story about the great work itself, the path of inner initiation. So what are some other lessons in the Mass that uh, we can take away? Well, as with many rituals, there's uh, a proclamation or an oath. In this case, we've got a creed. Um, this happens right at the beginning of the ritual, and um, it follows that idea of ritual flow that goes thought should precede word which should precede deed you're going to do something along magical lines you first have to conceive of it then you have to speak it forth to give it uh, some momentum and then you actually engage in the activity um, we also get a lesson in the art of invocation consider the priest's words thee therefore whom we adore we also invoke uh, this could be read as simply a statement of okay, we've adored something, now we're going to invoke it. But what if you read that as, when we adore something, we invoke it? 
the very act of adoration aligns us with that which is adored and is a form, therefore, of invocation. We bring into ourselves some measure of what it is we adore simply by the act of adoring it. I think there's so much to be gained from that in our approach to everyday living and everyday uh, aspiration. At the consecration of the elements, we get a lesson in how to consecrate something. And, and this is a slightly different uh, version of consecration than what I was speaking about before. Um, to consecrate something, we have to name it. And we see that happening in various ways. The priest has several kind of layers of naming, describing the principles that, that are being consecrated in the, uh, the host and the wine. Um, then the, uh, the act of showing the elements to the people. Um, whenever we, in a ritual, uh, whenever an officer elevates something or um, does a gesture with an object of some kind, you have to understand that this is uh, inwardly an act of empowering that, that object with consciousness, with awareness, and to the extent that the magician is capable uh, attracting force, magical force, of a specific kind to that object. So turning and showing the host and the wine, the cup, to um, the people is a way of, of imbuing that with, with more force. We also get an instruction in how to treat our inmost shrine of holiness in the way the cup is treated. Uh, the veiling and unveiling of the cup are accompanied by uh, adorations, uh, gestures of adoration. Uh, this is the cup of Babylon, the Holy Grail itself. How do we protect the sanctity of a magical implement in service of the aim of the ritual? You don't mess with it unless you are fully mindful of its holiness. You don't unveil that cup and unless you're going to do something specific with it along the lines of your magical aim and then as soon as you're finished you veil it again that's the nature of mystery itself and the nature of the right approach to personal mysteries we get an instruction in invocation also from the anthem um, it's an instruction in the nature of that which we worship as well, uh, in, in its specifics. But in the structure of it, you can see that, uh, as I mentioned in my, my podcast on constructing invocations, we have, to begin with, um, identified this thing that we adore, um, the thing we want to bring in, the thing we want to unite with, as more or less an external object or an external goal, at least, external force. And then gradually, through the, the priest portion of the, the anthem, we see this change to um, a stance of, now this thing is something I am using. And then finally, to more of a full identification with the force. We go from, thou who art I beyond all I am, 
to increasingly um, possessive and personal terms like um, the I invoke my faint fresh fire. Um, then finally, that most holy mystery of which the vehicle am I. So here we're now fully identified with this uh, force. And at that point, we can command it to do things or uh, maybe command is too strong, but you know, we, we have the ability to channel it um, because we've properly invoked it. So appear most awful and most mild as it is lawful in thy child. You know, we have the authority to do that now. So we can see the outline of any effective invocation here. We have to start with fully identifying the thing we want to unite with, name it, adore it, more or less as uh, as an outer thing, and then gradually find ourselves identified with it by the end. Um, at the consummation of the elements, um, quite obviously this is a, a Eucharist, um, so we've got a lesson in uh, the, the nature of the Eucharist itself. Make something holy, make it into the divine, and then consume it in order to take it in and... Um, you know, infuse ourselves with that force. Fairly, fairly self-evident there. And finally, at the end of the Mass, we have the benediction, the priest's final words. Having himself partaken of the Eucharist and the people having done the same, uh, all is prepared for this final act of blessing. And it could not have occurred earlier because the forces of the ritual had not yet been dispersed to all present, right? Uh, the formula was not complete until everyone had partaken of the the virtues and were set up for this final charge. Now, there's something very interesting going on here. Here are the three lines spoken by the priest. The Lord bless you. The Lord enlighten your minds and comfort your hearts and sustain your bodies. The Lord bring you to the accomplishment of your true wills, the great work the summum bonum, true wisdom, and perfect happiness. So three lines, three aspects of a formula, and these three lines correspond to the way the priest himself was prepared for his work, if you look at it from a certain angle. Uh, the Lord bless you. Well, the priest was blessed via his own preparation, the purification, purification consecration, initiation. Um, the second line, in terms of enlightening the minds, comforting the hearts, and sustaining the bodies, that's a threefold formula of action that corresponds to the threefold manner in which the priest was prepared by the priestess as she makes the crosses uh, upon the, the priest. Um, and then finally, the th final line there about um, accomplishing true wills is what the priest was empowered to do in the ritual itself. You know, we see the priest move to do his true will by administering the virtues to the brethren. So the actions and experiences and transformations that the priest himself went through are the very things that empower, in this final benediction, that empower the people to go forth and do the same. So a lar larger overarching magical lesson there, I think, is that a ritual properly performed empowers the magician 
to transmit that virtue to the outer world, whether that be to other people or to, you know, the object he's wanting to consecrate or anything like that. And a final lesson in the Mass that I want to talk about today is the principle of grounding after ritual. Um, the idea is that a magical ritual generates a lot of force, and to be efficient and sort of uh, economical with the use of that magical force, at the end of the ritual, it should feel as if that force was fully absorbed into the desired intention. So if you're charging uh, a magical implement of some kind, you want that implement to absorb all the force and not have it just feel like it's still bouncing around the room when you're done. If you're charging a Eucharist and consuming it and then administering those virtues to the assembled brethren, uh, you want that force to feel like it's done its job and, and run its course and all is absorbed. And uh, again, there's not this sense of a bunch of extra energy floating around. Um, psychologically, having that energy not be grounded and, and have a sense of completion with a ritual tends to be experienced as um, agitation or uh, uh, maybe feeling a little uh, too spacey in the head afterwards. Uh, it's just the way the ego tends to react to that in my experience. But when you ground that, that force, have it properly dispersed where it's supposed to go, um, you complete a certain circuit. You have then completed that, completed your role, fulfilled your role in the hierarchy, uh, bringing that force down from the highest divine sources to the physical world and its and its physical embodiment in the Eucharist and then in the bodies of the people who consume the Eucharist. So that's uh, one way of grounding out that whole current. And just like any electrical circuit, it's got to be completed in order for the force to fully flow. Um, so there's an instruction for any ritual. Complete the action, ground the force, uh, allow the circuit to be complete. So that's what I wanted to say to you today about just some of the magical principles that uh, can be extracted from the structure of the Mass. Um, I hope that this has been an interesting way to kind of look at the Mass as a, as a broader, more general instruction uh, in addition to its obvious utility for its intended purpose within the EGC and OTO. Um, so, as always, feel free to give me uh, comments, feedback, uh, recommendations for future topics via uh, my email, david at livingthelema.com. And if you visit livingthelema.com, you'll also find, as, as always, uh, resources for various episodes, uh, including some instructional videos. And if you have an interest in getting the Living Thelema book, which is based on uh, the podcast, then there's information on how to order that there. Um, so thank you very much, as always, for listening, uh, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Love is the law. Love under will. <laughs>